the morning we got the call to say that our second IVF didn't work, I knew I was done. I knew I couldn't go through that again. I knew I couldn't even, I could barely even set foot into a fertility doctor's office again. I was just finished and I didn't know, I knew I still wanted to be a mom, but I had no idea how I was going to get there at this point. You're listening to the Embrace Simplified podcast, where you will be inspired to unlock simpler, healthier ways to live your life. I'm a corporate ladder climber turned entrepreneur on a mission to help busy women feel their best. I'm bringing you real conversation with all my favorites, and we're talking wellness, relationships, money, business, career, and even parenting. I want you to laugh and cry, learn and grow right alongside me. I'm your host, Kirsty. Let's keep it real. Pour your coffee and turn it up. Together, we are going to simplify our life. Hey guys, welcome back to the Embrace Simplified podcast. Today, I am sitting down to talk with Erin Patterson. And kind of cool, Erin and I met years and years and years ago at one of my best friend's weddings. Okay, we were put together at the same table. And I've kept in touch with Erin over the years and our paths have crossed quite a few times. She used to own a gorgeous flower shop in downtown Toronto that I quite regularly frequented pre-children when I used to splurge and buy myself flowers every single week. We go back a long time. However, Erin has struggled with a lot And a lot of it, I actually wasn't even aware of when she was going through it. So this was a really powerful conversation on a personal note to finally learn everything that Erin has been through. And really to bring this conversation to you makes me so happy that she that she could be so vulnerable and share with us all because I find in these difficult stories, hope and resilience and And really just the possibility, right, for us to overcome unexpected obstacles in our lives. And that's why I love bringing you these these stories. And Erin is a author and public speaker in Toronto. She tested gene positive for Huntington's disease in 2006. And she's going to walk us through that, how that happened and what unfolded from it. She has suffered with a deep depression and also received crushing news that she was infertile when all of this was going on. But despite those diagnoses, she's been determined to have a family and live a joyful life. And she really does show that it's possible to live a meaningful life when all of the things can be thrown at you. Her stories have appeared in over a dozen sites, including Kevin MD, The Mighty, Huntington Disease News, And she is the new author of All Good Things, a memoir about genetic testing, infertility, and one woman's relentless search for happiness. She is also the founder of Lemonade Press, a local publisher, and she is going to tell us all about the types of people that she's going to be working with to bring more stories and more hope. Absolutely love this conversation. It could be very triggering for some people. And I want to make sure that I said that. But Erin shares in a beautiful way. She's absolutely done the work to process her loss and to grieve. And she's built a beautiful new business 
and wrote a beautiful book. And I can't wait for you guys to learn more about it. Everything you need to follow Erin, to get in touch with her or to buy the book is at erinpatterson.com and the link is in the show notes. Erin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Guys, I'm really excited to chat with Erin today about all kinds of things, but specifically, congratulations first on launching your first book. Thank you. It's so super exciting. It's the only thing I could compare it to is when we had our our daughter, Emma. It's just as surreal as having a child launching your book out into the world. Yes, absolutely. Okay, All Good Things launched this fall, right? Yeah. Okay. And we'll make sure everybody has the link of where they can purchase it and check out Erin. She's a public speaker, a writer. She writes for different blogs and also has some exciting things in the works. So tell us about kind of like what I want to start with is the story that got you to the place of becoming an author. So when I was 31 years old, I had, I felt like I had accomplished everything I needed to do to set myself up for success. I owned my own business. I was recently married. I had just ran my dream of running a full marathon and I felt, okay, I'm ready to settle down and have a family. So my husband and I actually started trying to conceive. And like a lot of people do, we went over to my parents' house one morning for breakfast and we said, Hey, mom and dad, we're so excited to tell you that you'll probably be grandparents next year. We've decided to have a family. But unfortunately, our news wasn't met with the fanfare we had expected. My mom is a huge lover of kids. She ran a daycare out of our house when I was growing up. So I thought she'd be ecstatic to finally be a grandmother. But not much was said about it. Unfortunately, a couple of days later, my parents called us on the phone and asked us to come over again on the weekend to speak to us. And that was when they revealed to us that they thought my grandmother had died of a genetic disease called, well, they didn't know what it was actually at the time that she died, but they suspected that she had had Huntington's disease when she died. And they felt that if we were going to have a family, that maybe we should investigate it a little before we decided to have children. Wow. So that just kind of knocked us for a loop. We had not really heard anything about this. When I was growing up, I didn't like my grandmother because my parents fought about her all the time. Mm. And I blamed my grandmother for that. And I didn't understand what they were fighting about. I was very young when my grandmother died. I think I was only 12 years old at the time. So the thought of there being a disease in our family that I might inherit, and Mm -hmm. that might mean I might turn into somebody like my grandmother, was very scary for me. So I made the decision to get tested and found out I was gene positive for Huntington's disease within a short eight-month period. And I got tested without my family knowing because Huntington's disease is genetic. That meant if my grandmother had it, then she could have passed it on to my dad. And if my dad had it, then he could have passed it on to me. And for us, it was a time-sensitive issue. We wanted to get tested right away because we were trying to have a family. And as you know, your genetic clock is always or your biological clock is always ticking. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to pressure my dad into getting tested because we had a time frame on it. So Mm -hmm. we went and got tested without anybody in my family knowing. I had my the support of my husband and a couple of running friends. And that was it. My brothers didn't even know. And it wasn't until I walked into the genetic counselor's office that day to get my, my test results. So I was sitting there. I didn't even know what my test results were. And I thought, well, crap, 
if I have Huntington's disease, then that means my dad has it and I won't be able to tell anybody. Yeah. So he could already be suffering from this disease and I wouldn't be able to say anything to anybody in my family about it. And this would, and I wouldn't even be able to tell them about me because that would be giving away his status as well. Right. Wow. So when you find out that you're positive, you also know that your father is yes. positive, but you don't, you have, you don't tell anyone. Yes. Can you, can you explain for anyone listening who may be like me? I unfortunately don't know a lot about Huntington's disease. So can you explain it to us? Cause you can have it, but not know you have it unless you're tested. Right. So, so basically Huntington's disease, a lot of people refer it as a combination of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and ALS. So it's a degenerative neurological disease that causes cognitive impairment, emotional issues, and uncontrolled movements. And is it, we can't go right now and be tested to know if we are going to have Alzheimer's, right? So it's diff, this is different that it's like somehow so, in your genes where you're going to right. be able so to the, test. In the 90s, the gene that causes Huntington's disease was discovered. And that's okay. how come we can go for a blood test. And find out from a blood test. So basically, there's a certain number of repeats that are normal, a certain number of repeats of the gene that are within a gray area, and then a certain number of repeats. If you have that that amount of repeats and above, that means that you will develop the disease. So when you test as gene positive for the disease, it doesn't mean you already have the disease. It means that you're going to get the disease. You just don't know when you're going to get it. Oh, wow, Aaron. So, so you're also finding out that like this is related to you starting a family, but this is also like your future, your dad's future. Yeah. A lot of things to absorb all at once. Wow. So how long did you hold on to that kind of secret until you you talked about it with your your dad? So as I was going through the process of testing, unbeknownst to me, so was my father. <laughs> we actually oh. got our genetic test results on the same day. I think he went in the morning and then I went in in the afternoon. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I think it was about a month before my parents told me about my dad's test results. And then I waited a couple of more weeks to tell them about my test results. So I didn't have to carry that for very long. Thank goodness. Because that would have been very difficult. Wow. So through this whole thing, you, your husband supporting you and you are working through this. Yep. The entire time. So Aaron and I initially met. I think we were like table mates at a wedding. It's That's true. The first we met. Yes. And then I also knew you when you owned your own business. Yes. And I liked to get flower deliveries at my office <laughs> all the time. So I would always be ordering her flowers. So, but at this stage, you were out of your business. You were working full time. At the stage that I was going through genetic testing, I was 31 years old and I owned my own business. You were. That's what I thought. Yeah. I was doing yeah. it to the math. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I opened my business when I was 26 and then I found out I was gene positive around the age of 32. Yeah. So I, I was running my business full time, but after my genetic test results, I was, I slumped into a severe depression and I was still getting up and going into work every day, but I could barely function. It was, it was just anything I t- could do to get through the day because I just kept thinking about my future with this disease and I, I felt, what's the point of living if this is the future that awaits me? I was terrified that my husband was going to leave me. I didn't know what to do about having children. I thought that if anybody found out about my genetic test results, they wouldn't want to be friends with me. 
I thought that if friends I already had found out, they would just want to break up with me and not be friends anymore. I I really viewed myself as damaged goods, as somebody who was going to cause others a lot of pain and be a burden on other people. So I really couldn't understand why anybody would want to be around me, let alone have children with me. So those are the things that I struggled with immediately following following my genetic test results. Fortunately, my husband was super supportive and he, you know, I'd cry myself to sleep every night saying, are you sure you still love me? Are you sure you still love me? And he would say, of course, I still love you. This doesn't change anything. Of course, I still love you. I want to be with you. I want to have a future with you. So eventually we decided that we were going to have children anyways, because now that I was gene positive, that meant there was a 50% chance that each child we had could inherit the disease from, from me. But I said to myself, I had to learn to say to myself, my life had value as a person with who's gene positive for HD. And so would the life of my child. My child has a right to live as well. Mm-hmm. So we decided to try to have a family naturally. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. And after a year of trying to have a family naturally, we ended up seeking the help of a fertility doctor and went through years and years of fertility treatments. So you're already in a really difficult spots you're yeah. you're in a major depression then you find out that you need to go through fertility treatments yes which just adds on to the depression <laughs> i know that you we know, were i know that we weren't like really close but when yes. when i it, when i talk to people who like keep this stuff to themselves i didn't know them then like i i knew you as this mm-hmm. business owner as like you know i would see you on facebook or something like i would somehow stay sort of like kind of in touch. But I had no idea that you were going through all of that at the same time. So, okay, so you start these fertility treatments. Mm -hmm. And when you say years, like how long are you talking? We went through fertility treatments for three and a half years. So we started out with things that were as minimally invasive as possible. So that's going in for cycle monitoring and they monitor when you're going to ovulate and all of that sort of stuff. And that didn't work. So then eventually they added on some medication to help you produce more eggs because the more eggs that are present, the more chances that some of them will fertilize. That didn't work. We went on to intrauterine inseminations. And then eventually we were faced with doing an IVF, which was something we never thought we'd get to. When mm-hmm. you're at the beginning of the fertility journey, you think, oh, this has got to work. How could it not work? Mm-hmm. And then every month after month after month, you're getting the phone call from the clinic nurse saying, I'm so sorry, you're not pregnant, come in again on day two of your cycle. So it was this huge, big roller coaster ride. You'd literally have one or two days to mourn the loss of not being pregnant that month before you'd have to go back into the clinic again. So when we started doing IVF, there was an experimental new procedure out called PGD, pre-genetic diagnosis. And I thought, if I'm going through the trouble of doing an IVF, I can I can't justify not doing it with PGD. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've gone that far in the process. Let's take that final step. So basically the process of PGD means that they check your eggs or your embryos to see if any of them have Huntington's disease. And then they only use the embryos that are free of Huntington's disease to implant into your room so that you can have an HD free baby. You mentioned that this was like that a certain part of it was non-invasive, but like this entire this entire process is so emotional. Like one of the things that you said was more in the loss of when you were in it, did you have 
therapy or something that would give you awareness that they're mourning a loss. A lot of times we're in something we don't even understand that it's grief until later we look back at it and we're like, oh, I was in grief. Did you get it at that time? I had a, a ton of therapy. Okay, okay. I, I felt like I was a therapy junkie at the time. The more things I could go to, the better. I was going to a support group for Huntington's disease. So there was a couple support group that we attended for people who were newly diagnosed. And then I had a private therapist that I went to see for infertility. Mm-hmm. And she also happened to run a support group. So oh, then good. I would go to that support group once a month as well. Okay, good. Yeah. So she was really pivotal in me getting through that journey because she would know what was coming for me before it even came. So she was sort of preparing me in advance of going through things. You know, she knew in her head, okay, if doing cycle monitoring doesn't work, Erin's going to have to move on to the next thing. So I'll start prepping her for that by getting her to think about the issues related to that treatment and the emotion she might be feeling ahead of time. Oh, how valuable. Amazing. Okay. Okay. So you then go into this experimental thing and they're going and they're checking these eggs. And then what happens? Well, (laughs) so we did our first round of IVF with PTD. And as we were driving to get the eggs, the embryos transferred back into my womb, they called to tell us that all of our embryos had HD. So we couldn't use any of them. You could, you could use them, but you, you could, you could use them, but there's a difference between taking a 50% chance that our child might have HD and mm-hmm. then having embryos that you know have HD and mm-hmm. making the decision to use them anyway. That's a hugely different decision. And for me, I knew that I couldn't use them. So we donated them to science. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they performed testing on them so that it could help other, other couples in the future. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, so, oh my goodness. I can imagine just being like, okay, now what? Like, is that how, like, yeah, there's yep. loss. There's so much loss in that. Like you've kind of psyched yourself up probably to this point, And now what? Yeah. Well, I thought that felt like I didn't even get a chance. So I wanted to try again. So yeah. we took a couple months off and we tried again, but then it didn't work. The second time we had two embryos that were free of the HD gene and they put both of them into my womb, but neither of them took. Yeah. After, after going through IVF twice, and, and you have to remember, it's not just going through two IVFs, it's going through years of treatments in advance of that. Right. Mm-hmm. So the emotional exhaustion has been building up and building up. So the morning we got the call to say that our second IVF didn't work. I knew I was done. I knew I couldn't go through that again. I knew I couldn't even, I could barely even set foot into a fertility doctor's office again. I was just finished and I didn't know, I knew I still wanted to be a mom, but I had no idea how I was going to get there at this point. Wow. How old were you at that point? So I started treatments around 32. So I guess I was around 35 at the point. So still young, right? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay. So you're, did you write about this as you were going through it or was no. this very private? Okay. I didn't, I didn't write about it at all. After I got my genetic test results, it felt like a big thing. Like this was this big life altering thing that happened to me. And I knew that I needed to tell people about it. And I knew that I wanted to write a book because I was, I, I still am a huge reader and a book just felt the weight of it felt as important as what it had gone through. 
I love that you said that because I remember going through something big, finally feeling like I could maybe share it with a small handful of people. And I, and I knew, like, I knew that there was going to be some way that I would like share that story with other people in some Mm. capacity. I don't even know if I knew it was like in a book at that point. And quite a few people were like, why are you so concerned with helping others in this moment? Like, if this is like survival zone, like you need to just focus on yourself. Like, and I remember having that feeling too, Erin, of like needing to like somehow share the story. And did you tell them why you felt like you needed to help others? I don't think I knew in that, in those, that early stages, I don't think I, I knew why. I just felt like, you know what it was? I think I put so much effort, like you say, therapy junkie. I put so much effort into like supporting myself through that and being like super intentional through it that I was like, this has got to be, there's got to be a maybe a reason why Mm -hmm. I'm going through this thing. And so maybe it's to shine a light for other people that are like feeling like they're in the dark in in a situation. Like my situation is obviously really different than what you're going through, but there was just like, maybe that gave me a little bit of hope. Like some of this pain was going to be used for good. I don't know. I totally agree. I just uh, felt like sharing my story would take this horrible, bad thing that had happened to me and make something good come of it. Mm-hmm. So even though I was still going to get Huntington's disease one day, and even though I'm still infertile, at least if it's helping somebody else, then it, it makes it feel a little bit better. It, it makes me accept it a little bit more. Yeah. And it was just like this gut feeling that I had from the very beginning. I need to tell people about this. That's that's the gut feeling I had. And I questioned it extensively. I thought, oh my gosh, am I so conceited that mm. I want to write an entire book about myself? Like, why do I want to tell people this? Do I like the drama? Do I want the attention? Like, why am I doing this? And I doubted myself for a very, very long time until I got a writing coach. Mm. And then she started encouraging me and saying, yes, this is a story you should tell. And yes, this is a story that can help other people. Absolutely. The the common, the common part is grief. Like we could all experience a major loss or are, are thinking our life is going to go one way and it going another. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there is people picking up this book that don't have Huntington's disease or maybe they haven't experienced the fertility issues that you had, but there's there, it still brings so much hope, right? That there's, Mm -hmm. you can, that you've, yeah, you've, you've written this beautiful book. You've shared your story. You've been so vulnerable. It's in, it's in some ways, I think that your vulnerability is what's maybe encouraging and hopeful to others. Okay. So where to go from here? I could like come through the computer and give you the bigger hug right now. (laughs) That's where I'm at. I'm just like, oh, so, so tell me what happens next. You find out that you are not going to try again with IVF and Tell us like sort of from that point to now launching the book, like what unfolds to get you to this point of becoming the author? So so after we decided that we weren't going to pursue any more treatments and we're sort of kind of giving up on our own fertility, even though you never really give up, like every month when I got my period, I still hoped that I was pregnant, right? Even Mm -hmm. after going through all these years of infertility, I never stopped trying in my head. But when I say giving up on our infertility, I meant sort of moving on from it and saying, okay, if we can't have genetic children, then what are we going to do? So we actually took a year off and we got second opinions from seven different doctors. We're lucky to live in a big city with tons of fertility doctors and nobody could really 
pinpoint why we were having the problems that we are having. So we decided that we weren't going to pursue any more treatments and that we were going to try adopting. I didn't know at the time if we'd even be able to adopt with my genetic status. And yes, there there was no way to find out an answer to that question. I had gone to some different adoption counselors to find out information, but you know, they want to make sure that you're going to be healthy enough to raise a child. And so then basically I had to prove that that was the case, that I was going to be healthy enough to raise a child. So we went through the adoption process, which is very intense in itself. You have to have 10 hours of interviews done by an adoption counselor, and you have to go through parenting classes that are adoption specific called pride training. And you have to submit your finances and have a medical done and get references. And So basically everything that everyone should have to do before they have children, <laughs> but you actually had to do it. Yeah. That's, yeah. I think, where you popped back into my life because you started to get loud about sure. that process, right? Yeah, you because I had to. Voice. Yes. <laughs> because in, we decided to pursue private adoption. And the way that private adoption works is you have to be chosen to be a baby's parents. So that means a birth mother or birth father have to say, hey, I want the feet to raise my child. So how is that going to happen, right? So you'll, there are adoption lawyers throughout the province and you can register with an adoption lawyer, which means paying them a fee and submitting a book. It's like a photo album of your life. And then a birth parent can go into the adoption lawyers and look through these life books and decide who they want to be the parents of their child. Or you can do it by word of mouth, which is... When I was getting loud and saying, hey, I want to be a parent. I want to adopt. <laughs> Spread the message with everybody you know, because I might have told you, Kirsty, and you might have told your best friend who told her cousin who knew of somebody who was making an adoption plan for their child. And then that could have been how we adopted our daughter. Right. So eventually, after a year of being very loud about it and being very vulnerable, because when you're going out there and saying, hey, I want to adopt a kid and this is how you can help, it invites a lot of questions. And those questions aren't always asked with the tact that you would hope, right? Right. So, so the saying, hey, I want to adopt a child would bring up questions like, well, whose fault is it that you're not pregnant? Oh, my Yours goodness. or your husband's. Things like that, right? And you're like, whoa, uh, I wasn't that? expecting. Yes. Oh. <sighs> yes. So eventually we were lucky to be chosen to be the parents of our daughter and we adopt we brought her home when she was 10 days old it happened really quickly i remember that right yes we got a phone call on a saturday saying hi Aaron and daniel i'm just calling to tell you that you've been chosen to be the parents of a baby girl that was born yesterday so you're trying you're doing this all of this work for like a year or more and then all of a sudden it's like boom yeah tomorrow you're a parent basically Instant parent, no, yeah. no nine months to prepare mentally. Yeah, nothing. She's and, and she's like baby, baby, like newborn baby. Old. Yeah, we met her when she was five days old, and we brought her home when she was ten days old. Wow! Oh my gosh! Oh, okay. So this, this is like where the story is like. There's like there's no there's no uh, is there any other like wrenches like major. Oh. The only other major wrench after that, I mean, and if you read the book, I go into in-depth detail about all of these things, right? And the emotions that I was feeling as I was going through these things. And I am really vulnerable and really dissected everything that I felt. 
but and yeah. I don't mean to call it wrenches. I don't think that's no. The right I understand word. what you mean. I just, no. I'm like sometimes you hear about adoption stories where like you know a, a year later they changed their mind or something oh, like well, that. So if you're adopting privately within Canada, there's two different periods where the birth parents have to sign off. I think the first one is at seven or eight days, and then the second second one is 28 days after that. So we had already brought our daughter home. So within that first 28 days, the birth parents could have said, uh, we've changed our mind and we want our baby back. So that first month was really quite intense. I just tried not to think about it. Because yeah. you're at home bonding with this baby, caring yeah. for this baby, and you know in the back of your head that it could end in a matter of seconds. So in the beginning, we didn't buy anything. We didn't get a crib. You know, we didn't do any of that nesting that parents get to do normally before their baby is born because we were just afraid of doing that so it wasn't until after the consent was signed at 28 days but then in the first year as well for the first six months the social worker comes by and does reports and checks it on you and then your paperwork has to go through the court system Mm -hmm. so we didn't actually get approved to be our daughter's parents legally until she was 11 months old oh yeah so did Okay, so that's pretty intense first year for anybody with a baby, mm-hmm. but you also have a lot of other things adding to the emotional yes. state of things. Did your, like, did you find your depression or anything like that come back at that time? I felt that I was extremely happy and extremely depressed at the same time. Right. It seems weird to say, but I was like, no, that makes sense. I was so excited that I was finally the mom that I always wanted to be. And I had this beautiful baby and I I just had so much experience with children. I felt like a natural mother. It didn't bother me when she cried. Like Mm. I just felt like I really fit into that role really well. But at the same time, I was still grieving the loss of my infertility. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm still infertile. I still didn't give birth to my child. There's a lot of loss associated with that. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand that those two things were happening at the same time. So sometimes people would say to me, you must be happy now. I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm so happy. I adopted so the baby. Pressure to but be also happy. at the same time, I'm so sad because I didn't give birth to her and she didn't come for me. And I love this baby so much. And how could she not have come for me? Mm-hmm. That's that's what it felt like. So I did have a bit of a breakdown that four months because I was trying to be that perfect parent and not let a bad word pass my lips because I had tried for so long to have a baby and I didn't want to be one of those parents who's complaining about being a parent, Mm. right? But even though some parts of it were really hard, I didn't say anything to anybody. So then at four months, I had a breakdown. and Of course, because you're a mom and it's four months and you break down, like, right? That's like, (laughs) oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, and then, and then there's so many people that four months, <laughs> six months, five months are like, I think I had a little bit of a breakdown. I'm like, yeah. 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 And then at the same time, the my business partnership was falling apart <laughs> during that first year. And I made the decision to leave my business when my daughter was, well, I made the decision when she was around eight months old, but I actually left the business when my daughter turned one. Wow. Okay. I just walked away from a company that I had built for 11 and a half years. Okay, so there was a little bit more because like then you're grieving the loss of that business and yeah. what you thought that was going to be. And so you're kind of like, in some ways, you're a brand new family, but you're also dreaming again about what you're going to do yeah. beyond motherhood. Wow. Well, okay, so the book takes us through all of that, like mm-hmm. before your daughter arrives and after yes. and, and all the things. Okay, 
And so tell us a little bit more about, like we talked about like how you always knew you were going to write, but what does this book mean to you? Like, you know, tell us a little bit about now that it's out there, there's like some, there's some like weird stuff that happens personally after a book launches. It feels a little, it, it feels a lot vulnerable. What does it mean to you to get this out into, you know, the HG community and everything? I, I feel like writing this book was kind of like part of my life purpose. So yeah. it just, it kind of feels like a huge, big relief that it's out there now. And writing it was very cathartic for me as well. So I feel like I don't have to hold on to all of that pain inside me anymore because it's in the book. <laughs> mm. It's there. If I ever need to go back to it, it's there. But it's kind of like the book is holding that pain for me now. But I just feel it's really important to get the book into the hands of as many people as possible because I know it's going to help so many people. Even if you're just looking at the Huntington's disease community or the infertility community, those are two things that people don't speak up about a lot, mm -hmm. that people carry as secrets. And they're very painful things to hold on to by yourself. There's a lot of emotions connected to all of those. So I think it's very important. I, I wrote the book because I wanted to say, hey, here's how I felt. And it was really crappy. And I got through. Mm -hmm. And I know you could get through too. Mm -hmm. And you might not feel that at the beginning. When I was first diagnosed, I thought to myself, how am I ever going to be happy again? How is it possible that as a gene positive person, I can ever be okay with that? How can I ever come to terms with that? I didn't know. All I knew is that was my goal. And I just tried to do little things every day to start working towards that goal of finding happiness again. I, well, I didn't know if I was going to make purpose. it there. Like if you feel like your purpose <laughs> is to share this book and to bring people together and share their stories, then that's probably what it was, right? That then leads to the happiness. Sometimes when we're like striving for happiness, but we're missing the point that it's all about our purpose and it that that can feel really frustrating too. Or also so, happiness is already there. Right. Yes, right? exactly. Yes. Look for the happiness or find the joy. And even, even in the middle of a bunch of crap that's going on, there's still mm -hmm. some joy in your life and there's still little things that can bring you happiness. So it's more about focusing on those things as well. Yeah. Yeah. In that like non-toxic positivity way, but just like pure gratitude and like contentment for, yes. for what you do have. So can you share with us where you go next with your writing and your speaking? Well, I have a children's book idea already lined up that my daughter is going to help me write. Yay! Which is very <laughs> exciting. She is very invested in my book publishing journey. You know, last year she tried to give me a publishing contract for Christmas. <laughs> she designed the cover of my book. Oh, she, awesome. I had, I had a cover designed and she decided she didn't like it. So one day she went down to the basement unbeknownst to me and got out her watercolor paints and painted me a new cover. And that is what I ended up using for my covers. So she's very excited to be writing a kid's book with me. Yeah. And that's then, a beautiful thing to do together. And also, I'm just now my, my mind is immediately also going to like just the legacy of this book for your daughter. Like so beautiful. She, she's very proud to be involved. So even on the back of the book, there's a little quote from her about why she designed the cover the way she did. <laughs> oh, I love that. And for those of you listening, the cover is basically just a big rainbow. Rainbow. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay. So children's book. Okay. Yep. And, and then I am recently launched my own publishing company with a focus on publishing, empowering medical anthologies. So it'll be books. It'll be anthologies where I get different writers to contribute. 
So it'll be stories from all different perspectives, but specifically medical stories, because I know how empowering it can be to share your story and to help other people. So that's what I want to help other people do. So I'll be releasing a book about Huntington's disease. So it'll be from the caregiver perspective, juvenile Huntington's disease perspective, maybe some genetic counselors, some doctors, and people who are gene positive for the disease. And then a rare disease book, which would be a collection of a bunch of different rare diseases. And finally, a path to parenthood book where I'm going to get stories about different ways people become families. Yeah. Those are all issues that feel close to my heart. It is so therapeutic to share your story with other people that need the hope and and to like just to see themselves in your story. It's so powerful. So the fact that you're now giving that opportunity to other people is beautiful. It's a beautiful Thank next you. step. Okay, so this is, uh, I don't know whether other people are going to be wondering this or not, but this is what's on my mind. How would you know to go get tested for this? Well, it runs in families. So, so if, if your parents had never told you that information about your grandmother, you would have really no reason to have gone and got tested. Right. I can imagine that a lot of us don't look back at grandparents or great-grandparents we don't probably know a lot of the reasons if we think it was just old age or what have you. I know my grandmother died of what, maybe she had a stroke. Maybe that's what she died of, but like Mm -hmm. she definitely had dementia. Like I can think of like all these other things. I'm thinking, I don't know that I'm strong enough right now to go and get tested for something like that. Do people just go to get tested just because, or do you need to have like a reason to really go? I, I think you have to be referred by a family doctor to a genetic clinic in order to get tested for it, right? Because Huntington's disease, there are a lot of, for, for me, I'm living in the in-between years right now, right? I, mm-hmm. I've tested gene positive for it, but I don't have any symptoms yet. So a lot of times by the time people have symptoms, which is the uncontrolled movements or chorea, that's when they say you have Huntington's disease. But for a lot mm-hmm. of people, there's emotional changes 10 to 15 years ahead of that. So it's not something that you just say, hey, I think I might have this. There has, There's usually a history of it in your family, just like with most genetic diseases. I wanted to clarify that some people are like they love to go get a test so they know. And then there's people like me that are like, I'm going to avoid a test because I really don't know if I can know. And I wondered whether people listening were going to be like, oh, this is just something else I should go get tested for. But I wanted no. to make sure that no. they understood it was like. It was more of a history, but it also is a great reminder for us to maybe pay attention more, ask more questions to our parents of like what has been, you know, in our in our family history as we get older. Right. I definitely feel like I'm getting older and all of a sudden these things like (laughs) I'm paying attention more. I also think it's important for people to think about the impacts genetic testing can have on your life Mm. as demonstrated by the severe depression that I went through. Yeah. And I feel that even those mail-in kits that you can get that tell you certain things about your genetic makeup, you never know what you're going to find. So mm-hmm. if you're going to consider doing something like that, I would think about, oh my gosh, there might be something that I find out that I'm not ready for or that yeah. I wasn't expecting. So I think you just have to be do it willy-nilly. You should be prepared that yeah. there might be some serious information in there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I I can only imagine how difficult that would be. Like that one thing would be there's a lot of things that you have overcome. Your resilience is amazing and I thank you. I, I'm so glad that you wrote this book. So, we are going to give our listeners a little taste of the part of the first chapter of this book 
If you want to purchase it or gift it, the link is in the show notes and you can find Aaron at it's AaronPatterson.com. That's right. Aaron Patterson with one rule. <laughs> That's right. And the link is in the show notes. Thank you so much, Aaron. I really appreciate your time today. I appreciate you just vulnerably sharing with us your story and I'm really excited to see what happens next. And I can't wait to see you and your daughter launch your first book together. (laughs) Hopefully next year. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Guys, we're lucky enough that Erin is going to read us a passage from her new book, All Good Things. And I love getting a sense of the author's writing style and just storytelling and I think that she picked a beautiful place to share her story with you so back and listen there's a five-minute reading from Erin from her new book All Good Things. I remember one hot summer afternoon after coming back from a long training session with a close running friend. We were cooling off with a nice coffee at Starbucks. I'd been feeling particularly panicky all day. I wanted someone to talk to. I needed someone to help me feel better about my situation. What's the point of living if I have to deal with all this crap, I confided in her, leaning across the narrow coffee table, my eyes anxiously darting around to see if anyone was listening. What am I supposed to do if I can't fix it? Why are you so worried about something that's not going to happen for 20 years, she asked. You could get hit by a bus tomorrow and die. The discussion abruptly stopped. I couldn't reply. I turned my head away from her gaze and stared at the display of coffee mugs. My shoulders crumpled even further down into my depression. I wished I could physically melt into the overstuffed leather chair and disappear. Through the hum of the other patrons, I thought, I can't believe she said that. The thought of dying tragically while I'm still young is supposed to comfort me? I wanted to get up and leave immediately, but I didn't. She continued sipping on her coffee, oblivious to the pain she had just inflicted on me. And I sat there thinking, I feel like such a loser. Why did I bring this up? I should have kept my mouth shut. So what route do you want to run tomorrow, she asked, completely changing the subject. In a stunned daze, I replied, huh? Oh, the usual, I guess. Surprisingly, and I've heard that sentiment more than one time, and from different people, I was so flabbergasted each time it happened that I never had a reply. Another frequent response to my disclosure is, they'll probably find a cure before you get it. Unfortunately, scientists likely won't discover anything of benefit to me in my lifetime. Perhaps for the next generation, but not mine. Think positively and you probably won't get it, I've heard more than once. No amount of positive thinking is going to fix this situation. It is written in my genes, and one way or another, at some point in the future, I am going to develop Huntington's disease, and there is nothing I can do to stop it. Even my closest friends, people who have been privy to my journey leading up to my diagnosis and after, didn't understand why I felt different. I felt like an outsider, like a weirdo. I am walking around with knowledge about my future that most people don't have about themselves, and it was damn hard to cope. But I was determined not to let it ruin my life. Given a choice, most people probably wouldn't peek into the crystal ball of their future like I have. Would you look if you knew there was a 50% chance you would find out something bad? Or would you see it as a 50% chance you would see something good? I always felt I'd get bad news from the beginning, yet I still chose to look. There were all sorts of thoughts going through my head after my diagnosis. 
I constantly wondered, what is the point of even living? Some nights, I would have to go to sleep just to get away from my own mind and stop the rising panic from overwhelming, overwhelming me. It was always there, the panic, bubbling below the surface. I had little control over what would set me off. On one particularly bad day just after I found out, the shaking hand of the elderly lady paying for her groceries ahead of me was enough to tip me over the edge. My mind immediately jumped to a vision of my future self, to my own shaking hand, and all the air within my chest dropped down to my stomach. I diverted my gaze and anxiously waited for the lady to leave. While paying for my items, my throat started to constrict as I tried to keep the emotion from welling up and spilling out of my eyes. I made it to the car before the onslaught of tears overcame me, and I heaved and stopped over the steering wheel for ten minutes before I could drive away. I felt so alone. I simply didn't care about the same things I used to. I found it hard to connect with people and longed for deeper relationships, not ones based on materialistic wants. Useless gossip or what's on Netflix. I needed to talk about it. I didn't want it to be a secret anymore. I just wanted everyone, someone, to understand. I wanted someone to ask me if I was okay and listen to me when I told them I was not. I needed my voice to be heard and my pain to be acknowledged. Maybe when someone said something stupid, I should have told them off. Imagine if in the coffee shop that day, I had the guts to stand up to my friend. I mean, literally, if I had stood up, angry fists by my side, and with a slightly raised voice, I said, I just want you to listen to me. Stop trying to placate me by telling me a bus could hit me tomorrow. You are stopping the conversation and you are taking away my voice. You are telling me it's not a big deal, that I shouldn't worry about it. I know you're just trying to make me feel better, but it only makes me feel worse. You are negating my feelings. For once, I wouldn't care that everyone was looking at me. Publicly exposing my secret, I'd continue on my epic rant. Why can't you just say, holy crap, that sucks? Don't worry, you can say it. I already know it sucks and it would feel great for you to acknowledge my feelings. I want you to get over your own discomfort, your fear of death and disease, and just let me tell you about it. And stop telling me it will be okay because it's not going to be okay. It is not okay now. I am suffering now emotionally and mentally. With that, I would storm out of the coffee shop with everyone in shock but I have never said it. Instead, I smiled politely like I'd been raised to do, and I sat there feeling stupid, embarrassed, and misunderstood. I kept struggling alone in silence. I was trying to be heard, but nobody was actually listening. So I stopped trying to be understood, and I kept it all inside. I rarely talked about it, and the secrecy was destroying me. I felt like I wasn't living life. I was just surviving it. Thanks for listening to Embrace Simplified, the podcast. I hope you picked up some inspiration today and that you take action to feel your best. Can you guys do me a solid? If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. It helps more people find the podcast. If you know someone who needs to hear this episode, shoot them a text right now and share it. I love getting those notes from friends. And I also love seeing where you're listening from. So please keep tagging us online at Embrace Simplified. Don't forget to subscribe so you can catch new episodes as they drop. Until next time, I'm your host, Kirsty. Remember, you have it in you to simplify your life. <laughs>